Welcome to the Ocean Cruises podcast hosted by Andy H. This week we are speaking with Lynn Pardy, author and multiple circumnavigator. Lynn Pardy is an inspiration to thousands of liveaboard and sailors all over the world. She has circumnavigated twice in engineless home-built wooden boats. She is the author of 12 sailing books, the recipient of countless awards, and in 2000 was introduced to the Cruising World Hall of Fame. Lynn is currently in New Zealand refitting a steel boat for another world voyage. If you want to learn more about Lynn and her journeys around the world, you can visit www.partytime.blogpost.com and download the latest documentary about her and Larry, The Real Deal, on Vimeo. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, watch the interviews on YouTube, and download the audio on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Well, I've never had much experience with steel boats, um, and uh, this is my first time on one for more than just, you know, delivery or such. Um I think like many things, there's pros and cons. So let's start with the thing that did impress me is uh, soon after David and I were sailing together and we decided to sail off to the Pacific Islands, we arrived in Fiji and um, anchored, did the usual clearance stuff, headed ashore for the shower a long-awaited shower after 10 days at sea. Yep. And um, while we were having dinner, or just after we finished dinner, a squall came through. It had been you know, perfect tropical weather. This is in Suva Harbor, as I said. And um, everybody in the started running down to the edge of the Yacht Club lawn, and we joined them to see a 150-foot super yacht take off across the harbor like it had been shot. And right. end up aground, you know. Yeah, it was way over on an angle by the, you know, within a few minutes. So David said, "I've got to get out and check on Sahula, and uh, she's a forty-foot Vandestat." Um, there's other complications here. I had had an accident and had five broken ribs. It's and uh, eight happen? fractures altogether. We'll talk about that some other time. That's another story. So I was, but it happened just uh, it happened uh, 10 days previous. But uh, I was a person, but I was able to get into the boat. And when we went out to, headed out of the little breakwaters, this is kind of rough old marine area that's just a breakwater and boats tied bow to the shore. Got out there and it was blowing about 50, three or four foot seas running. And we couldn't see the masthead light on Sahula, which is exceptionally bright. And uh, all we could see is uh, there was a big ship laying beam on across the area where she had been. And it was obviously aground. Uh, you know, to tell that uh, she was not where she belonged. And when we were clear of her, there was Sahula laying aground also. You know, not, uh, she was, you could see that she had grounded out and, uh, when we got on board, there was no anchor, no chain, um, and the snubber, the inboard snubber and the outboard snubber had both been broken. And uh, there was paint and chips everywhere. The pulpit on the bow and stern were both mangled. And uh, the 
bulwark rail was smashed in. It was a wooden bulwark rail. Well, it turns out that the ship had broken its, this 200-foot uh, ferry, about 300 mm. tons, had broken its mooring. And it was a dead ship. It didn't have an engine working at the time. So the crew couldn't do anything about it. She slammed right into Sahula. She was ended up upwind. And uh, Sahula then, you know, the ship kept drifting, pushed Sahula down on, uh, you know, alongside her. And fortunately, Sahula's anchor snubbers broke and let the anchor run out because otherwise she would have been rolled right under the ship. Uh, and she was shoved into three other boats. There's five yachts altogether, and three of them hit Sahula. Okay. On the side away from the ship, those other three were able to get themselves free of her. Then the ship went aground, then Sahula drifted off. Well, when I did get on board, which was interesting, uh, I went down below, and the blow from the ship had been so severe that it had snapped the locks on the two lockers that were on the up, uphill side, shall we say, okay. and thrown plates and dishes out. It had smashed even the plastic bowls. You know, good plastic bowls had just smashed into pieces. So that was a hell of a sharp... That was a real impact. I wasn't yeah. surprised that, the, you know, the Corel... China, some of that broke, but went also. Yeah. So when I then look at the boat and the damage to it, there wasn't even, there was just a slight indentation on one spot on the hull. So there's a real advantage to mm, a steel boat. boat. I was amazed how strong. And the other advantage was when we had to remove the rails and they had to fix a, um, stanchion base which mm. the local the local mechanics did a wonderful job uh you just weld it on it just you know it's not like the structures you know it's a it's a monocoque structure so it means you can yeah. put things on and you can take things off without having to build all sorts of framework underneath so there's you know mm. everything in life has advantages and disadvantages but that was one real advantage they are tough yeah, I mean, if you can take um, a super yacht whacking into your beam, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> like no, it was actually it was a big ferry. It's a big ferry, commercial ferry. All oh, right. But then the, the 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 other three yachts, one was a sixty footer, and the other two were thirty five and forty feet. But still, she came out of it amazingly well. And mm. I must say that the the Suvian officials and the ship owner came to the game. And the local tradesmen were amazing. So nine days later, couldn't fix the bulwark rail completely. They put a Band-Aid on it because it was impossible to fix it with the materials they had available. So right. we had a little Band-Aid on it until we got to Australia. So that part of the steel boat I found impressive. Um, the disadvantage is what we've got right now. And that is, you have to be so careful with electrolysis. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, we, we took the boat in to do a bit of a, we're do, you know, a refit and checking the inside for for rust. 
because every three or four years, you have to check every inch of that boat inside oh, yeah. and catch any rust. And there's going to be rust. But um, in this case, we had to uh, get under the engine to, to uh, re you know, refinish a few spots. And uh, when they and the, the shipyard mechanic lifted the engine uh, and we put a new cutlass bearing in and they were not um, able to realign the engine with a new cutlass bearing. So had to do a, a modification on the engine mount, the beds where the engine mount sit. And uh, so they did it and they did a fine job. Now we've got Sahula on a tidal grid, you know, at, at home here, I have a little house and we have, I have a little boat yard here and we just dry boats out on the tide. So, you know, yeah. so it's right next to the shop. And when we were down there looking at her the other day, we noticed some white uh, coral-like growth around the rudder, started to look at it more closely. And oh my gosh, we got major electrolysis. I mean, really major. It pitting all along the front of the rudder okay. and the prop shed, prop strut. Um, got our mechanic over, and we were we were already pre preparing to certify the boat because to legally go into marinas in many parts of the world, you have to show that the boat isn't throwing off electrical currents. Mm -hmm. So uh, we were going to get it certified, and uh, so when we called the electrician and the certification man, they came over and they said the people who put the engine back in didn't put the bonding strap to the hull from the in, from the engine block to the hull. So right. it's okay. been and so there's a disadvantage to a steel boat. So now she has to be hauled out and uh sandblasted and refinished. And that's uh, so annoying because that's such a simple yeah. mistake as well. And it's not your mistake, yes. it's someone else's. Yeah. So uh, this being a small country and being a local boat builder who I happen to have known for years, uh, I will be calling him on Monday. And I'm not looking forward to that phone call to see how we can work together on uh, getting her fixed up. But it's coming up mm. Christmas, and that's the worst time of the year to get anything done on a boat here because that's summer here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so of not, course it is. So Christmas, I'm in the yeah. middle of summer. Yeah, it's a super yes. holiday. That's it, such an annoying, well, such yeah. an annoying situation to be. What you so worst case scenario, you're going to have to what possibly replace some steel where the electrolysis no, has gone. No, but very fortunately, we caught it. You know, it, it didn't get okay. Unless there's something we can't see. The unfortunate thing is we have to drop the rudder out to get to the, there's pitting on the shaft. The oh. shaft is, a, is a very strong. It's very strong. And there, once again, um, it's gone, it's on a skeg. The, it, it means you can ground the boat out and mm. that skeg can take it. You know, it's not like a wooden skeg that might not be able to, or a fiberglass skeg. You can put the full weight of that boat on that skeg and it's, won't damage it so uh so no it's just what do you do for drying that boat out because that, that boat is a, fi a normal fin keel yeah a uh, long fin it's got a long, long fin. fin keel and you know rudder on a you know a skeg yeah so when you dry that out do you rest it on its side or do you put those like pegs up against no the well in this case uh we have uh, leaning posts 
you know, they vote. So basically, oh, right. when she, keep it. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, when we bring her alongside, we have I have three title grids here. So when you bring a boat alongside, you get it steadied out. You, know, you get it on where you want it. You take a line from the masthead to a I have special lines that are set up. So you just hook your masthead halyard in, into it. And that just keeps it leaning in a little bit. So it's leaning against the posts. When it floats, sometimes it heals a little extra if it's a real high tide. So, like, she's been alongside for three months and oh, wow. happily Just sitting there. Up and down. Yeah. And, like, right now I've got my little boat, my little playboat boat. Uh, my, it's a little Hershoff Felicity. Okay. And she's on the what we call the, the little tidal grid. And uh, the good thing is I can only work for five or six hours before the tide gets me. So you never work too long on the bottom of that boat. <laughs> never got too hard of a day. <laughs> Not too hard nice, of the day. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, you get a little muddy. So <laughs> there's yeah. a bit of mud. We, we used to keep a boat in um, North Wales like many, many years ago when I was a teenager. It was like the first boat we got. And um, yeah, like we well, we used to keep it in a marina that had the, uh, it's like a gate that actually dropped up and down. Um, so uh, we were fine, but yeah, quite a few people that used to like more up in the estuary. They used to either uh, most of them used to put the pegs. I don't, I don't know what they're called, but they used to put the pegs on the legs. Side of the top side. Legs, yeah, legs, yeah. right. So they used to put yeah. those up, and then there was a few people that used to um, like more alongside the key walls. And there was a couple of times when we walked yeah. past, and you, we've seen boats hovering in the air. So like they <laughs> haven't let out enough rope. Yeah, there was, there was, yes. uh, yeah, there's probably about two or three times we'd actually seen that. And I was like, I was amazed, yeah. like the ropes, well, they weren't massive boats. They were like little 20 foot type of sailboat type of things. Um, not as heavy as your 20 footers, you know, <laughs> these, these are like little fiberglass ones. Um, but uh, yeah, I was amazed the ropes could take it and then the cleats could actually take the weight of it as well. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, when we got over to England on our first long distance voyage on Seraphin. You know, Larry Larry done a lot of other long distance voyages, but first time I'd crossed the Atlantic. And uh, we got to um, Dartmouth and the boat was obviously getting, you know, she had to have a scrub. And uh, the local harbor, uh, I think he was a guy who sort of took care of the waterfront, said, well, we've got a good tidal grid here. You don't have to pay her anything, just use it. And they had a whole area set up beautifully right along the quay on the main street in town. And it was oh, set nice. up with nice concrete bearers and the fish boats would go up there. You know, everybody it was very used by a lot of people. So we waited till there was an empty spot and brought her alongside. And um, unfortunately, Seraphin had uh, the keel had quite a long rounded area, you know, sort of a beautiful, fair sweep. But it meant that she ended up bow down when she was <laughs> rolling right out a bit right okay. yeah so we couldn't sleep so we uh decided to turn the cushions or the uh bedding around in the forward cabin and uh, all right so you were head up rather so, than head down <laughs> yeah so we were head up and that was all fine until just at day just when barely daybreak the boat started bouncing and you know a wake hit her and uh she you know, bounced quite a bit and it sort of panicked larry because you know he wasn't expecting that he woke up and uh went charging out of the bunk 
and ended up jammed in the chain locker because he was so used to climbing out towards his feet, right? Mm. The way he'd always climbed out of the bunk. And this time when he climbed out of the boat, we were sleeping reversed. And he was literally caught in the chain locker trying to figure out where he was because he hadn't woken up completely. <laughs> so. That's good memories of Dartmouth. <laughs> uh, that's a memory. <laughs> Uh, how long did you spend in the UK? Oh, various times. Uh, we, uh, on Seraphin, we sailed over there in 72 and uh, stayed for almost, spent almost three years sailing. And we sailed up to the Baltic. Larry did the round Britain race, you know, and sailed around Britain. Excuse me. And uh, I'm just looking at some. Uh, so, so I sailed around Britain. So that was the next year or so. And then the third year we set sail, went down to Spain and into the Mediterranean. So it was uh, most of two years. Right. And then on Talison, uh, many years later, we sailed over for the uh, 1995. We sailed up there to be ready for all of the beautiful events that were happening in 1996, which is the Festival of the Sea in France, where over 2,700 wooden and classic boats rendezvoused in Brest. Right. Okay. And then that was wonderful. And then we did seven different race weeks that in up and down the English Channel that season. And uh, then the next season, we sailed around Ireland and Scotland and then came back to England again. And then the third season, we finally headed south to the Canary Island. No, actually, the Cape Verde and over to Bermuda. Right. So once again, three years in and around the UK. You must like Great it. Great sailing. Oh, there's, there's so many interesting places to, so much history, so many interesting people. People were wonderful. Mm. And uh, the music in Ireland. I'd go back to the west coast of Ireland anytime just to yeah. sit in those pubs late at night and listen to the, all the musicians and locals uh, having an, you know, just a good old time together. It was wonderful. Yeah, it's like party town, but not like Cancun or Vegas, like the original type of party town, I suppose. Like good, a, Well, good Dingle definitely is. 50, uh -huh. yeah, Dingle has uh, about 5,000 people and 52 pubs. Mm. And, uh, you know, in the summer, mus musicians come from all over the world just to uh, get together and play with the other musicians there. Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking, you spent like six years in the UK in total. Like, that's more time than I've spent there as an adult. So you probably know the UK better than I do. I would imagine so. <laughs> and you probably travel the UK more than I have as well, which is pretty. Did you go to the Silly Isles when you were there? Yes, we did. Yes, and uh, had a delightful time there. There uh, got to know the local sailmaker. The minute you know the local people a bit, mm. it changes the whole scene. So yes, yeah, not the best anchorages, but uh, yeah, I've I've never been. I'm going. I think um, I've got a couple of friends who've got a uh, Halberg Rassi in. Uh, I can't remember the name of the marina down south. Things near Southampton and. Um, yeah, we're going over there, I think, in April, something like that. So it looks beautiful. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, it, it's really rugged and uh, attractive history. Just every inch of it's laden with history. Yeah. Um, well, we were there, a ship had gone down and um, had a lot of containers. And the containers that broke free were filled with children's clothes and shoes. And all the <laughs> islanders were rushing over the beaches collecting and trying to find two you know right and left shoe of the same size yeah but then there was the um, customs man was reminding everybody that they had to register what they took because there was duty to be paid on it oh my (laughs) god (laughs) and he was (laughs) he was a um a blow-in as they call him someone who you know an official from the mainland and they were trying yeah. to bamboozle him so it was i remember there was quite a bit of grumbling and trying to sneak things in behind his back <laughs> so. i can't believe that yeah. so you've got clothes you've got clothes and shoes washing up on the shore of an island from a container and like her majesty's <laughs> revenue and customs is waiting to, to like tax people <laughs> who pick stuff up i apologize that's bad <laughs> <laughs> How did you um, find Cape Verde? Um, I, I'm heading down there in December. I've never been before. I've not spoken to that many people who've been, only a few people. I remember they're very desert islands. They don't get a lot of rain. Uh, they're just in the wrong place. And they're not, you know, the ones we visited weren't tall enough to stop the clouds. So they're very um, dry and quite poor, you know, limited yep. resources. Um we had absolutely no trouble there were there was only i think there was two other yachts came through we were there for about a week and a half and um we paid a young boy to watch our dinghy for us and right. people say that's a ripoff well for two dollars a day it helped him yeah yeah <laughs> our feeling was it helped him and he was delightful and he used to wipe it down for us it was all clean when we got back but uh the music the local musicians, they play uh, something called Fado, which is a uh, wonderful uh, sort of cross between flamenco and uh, African. And uh, right. it just, and we spent many, almost every evening at this one little cafe where the owner was a great violinist, a fiddler violin. Uh, so our memory of it is just great music and pleasant people. Um, the marketplace did not. Um, I was glad that I did all my shopping in the UK and had a you know pretty full boat because there was very little provisions to buy that except some local produce. Yeah, I didn't. The tomatoes yeah. were wonderful. Yeah, but uh, I found it really interesting. I think there must there should be some good diving around the edges. Uh, we didn't weren't into diving at that time, uh, okay. but uh, we didn't do much exploring because we were having a very pleasant time right there. I think it's so, more uh, of like a stop by, or most people treat it as like a stop by place. I've got, I've got a friend yeah. and I think they stayed for like a couple of weeks just waiting out for a weather window. They actually said exactly the same. Oh. They said it's very, very poor. Um, yeah, it doesn't yeah. rain except when it does every so often, it absolutely smashes it down and it brings like loads of trash into the yeah. ocean as well. I don't know where that comes from um but yeah they said they loved like the restaurants and cafes and like you go in there and you get people off the street they're just like walking in and they just start singing to you and dancing and like you know they're just generally like really happy people (laughs) so yeah i'm looking forward to going yeah yeah 
I think I'd go back. I wouldn't hesitate, but uh, I don't think there's a lot to explore on land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely a place to hang out, just waiting for a a weather window. Did you spend a lot of time in the Canaries when you were going? So going from Northern Europe, I'm presuming that was for an Atlantic crossing. Never been to the Canaries. No way. And I've crossed the Atlantic seven times. Whoa. Oh. That's the, yeah, that's really surprising. <laughs> so what so what what like say you're leaving Europe and you're heading over to um to North America, um or Central America. Well, let's what, see. what were the routes that you were taking? Let's see. The first time I went, we came of course uh, from Chesapeake byway of Bermuda and the Azores. I've done that yeah. a couple of times, three times. Um, but leaving Europe, um, we were headed for the Chesapeake. So we stopped in Madeira and oh. then over. And then the next time we were, when we done, went down to the Cape Verdes, we were headed for Brazil. Right. So uh, we left um, from the Azores down to Cape Verdes. So we didn't go to Europe that time. We're kind of crazy. We sailed, we spent quite a bit of time in Europe, and then we sailed over the East Coast of the U.S. and spent three years exploring up to Maine and around the Chesapeake and New York area. Uh, And then all of a sudden decided we want to go around Cape Horn to get back to the Pacific. And um, so we sailed to Bermuda and then over to the Azores, waited out the cyclone season there, and then sailed down to the Cape Verdes. So no reason to go to the Canaries that time. When we were delivering boats across the Atlantic, um, Madeira was the better stop because it was easier in and out. Mm. Maybe there would have been more there as well. What what year was it when you were, or what year was it when you would have passed the Canaries, like when you were on your way down to Cape Verde? The last time we went by there would have been 2002. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. So it would have been fairly populated and pretty yes. commercial then. Yeah, I was thinking it might have been when you had your first boat because that would have been like quite a way back. I'm not sure if there would have been much in, in the Canary Islands back then. Yeah. No, well, we went east about, so we didn't go back across the Atlantic on her. So, right. So on, Sarah, uh, on Seraphine, we, although it was a zigzaggy route, we went pretty directly on a circumnavigation. Might have taken us 11 years, but... Uh, we just, uh, but on Talison, we just went, we went where we heard there was the next good party or next good regatta. So we crossed the Atlantic a few times because you're going back and forth. See, it says a lot about like how much you love sailing when you are sailing around the world, looking for different ways to sail. <laughs> you know, you have, you have well, to, to really well, enjoy to, uh, it. Well, the thing that we loved about both of the boats is uh, they were really good sailing machines. And Larry had a racing background. And uh, so we, he chose to, to have a boat that had a real good light wind sailing ability. Okay. And of, of course, they both look like antiques, these boats, because they were really old fashioned appearing, uh, the style. But they sailed like little witches in the light winds. So there was nothing more fun then arriving someplace and being invited to join a local race. And they, they're just being nice to say oh, that funky little boat. Mm. And uh, we'd get out there. And for some reason, most of the places we were invited to sail, the winds were relatively light. Cape Town being an exception. But uh, 
we get out there and all of a sudden turn on a good bit of a performance with the boat. And, and uh, all of a sudden people were really, the local guys were really interested in this. It kind of made us <laughs> friends immediately. People don't mind being beaten uh, when it's in a fun situation like that. Yeah. So yeah, instead they found it interesting that this, how come that funky little boat that's full of all that cruising gear can keep moving like that? So then they'd start looking at the design and the underbody and the fact that she carried a real sail plan. So to was us, that it? the was most... It, was, it, was, it, was it just the sail plan or do you think, was it something to do with the specific shape of the hull? Because it does not, neither of those boats look like they would move fast at all, especially in okay. light winds. The, they were, they're special. The reason they go in light winds, very fair underbody, no protrusions, no propellers, you know, the no, rudder has fairing strips that fares it right in. So the very clean flow of water, relatively low wetted surface because it doesn't have the hard turns. Mm -hmm. And the other, and a good powerful sail rig, but the weight of the boat means that once you get her moving, she keeps moving. Yeah, she keeps Where we've, yeah. So we've been racing against some of the little far 30s and such, and a wake comes you know, a way, you know, some boat comes by and sets up a wake. They bounce and jiggle around in the really light winds. Exactly. We just keep steady and moving. And the other thing is both Larry and I are just, for some reason, we both are particularly happy sailing in very light winds. So we probably mm. concentrate more. Yeah. Oh, it's, and, it's much you know, nicer. If you've got a boat that can like head up yeah. wind pretty well and you're in like light wind conditions, yeah. it's so nice, you know, like doing five, oh, knots, beautiful. Of, like, five knots of wind at wind. It's great. Low yeah. seas. It's my favorite. Yeah. yeah. I'd say the lucky thing for us and the thing that kept us cruising so much, so long, is that we thought of our boat as not just a way to get across an ocean. It was our toy also. Yeah. So we had... We had a home, we had a, an adventure machine, and we had a toy. And I would say that joining the local races was one of the best things we ever did because it introduced us to people, immediately yeah, local people. And we had friends the minute we got somewhere um, to the point where when we came to New Zealand, uh, we joined a two-handed race the first when we first got to Auckland because it was a series. And Larry and I said, well, we've been practicing two-handed sailing quite a while, so we we'll ought to try this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, Everybody uh, knew as well. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we got out there and did exceptionally well. We won the series in our class, you know, the 30, 30 feet and under. But we bought a home that season by accident in New Zealand. Unexpectedly, we found this wreck of a place that was we saw as a potentially perfect for us new year's eve which is in the middle of summer here uh we were thinking oh it's rather quiet our first new year's here in new zealand and all of a sudden a parade of boats come sailing in and anchors and it's all the it was 12 of the different boats from the two-handed series decided that we shouldn't spend new year's alone and they made a no party way. at our, our house for us i mean from at seven o'clock in the evening, we we're saying it's going to be a bit of a quiet one. And so the two handed, you know, going racing mm. changed our life here. Yeah. It just like immediately like injected you into the community in such a great way yeah. as well. 
Yeah, it was really good. New Ze- yeah, New Zealanders are just so nice, like such friendly, open people. I've had, um, I've travelled around quite a bit, and I've made quite a few friends from there. And yeah, they're just great. So nice. I've never, yeah. I've never met anybody from New Zealand who I thought was the slightest bit special. <laughs> They've all been like so, so nice. Well, let's just say New Zealanders are so pleased that people go to all that trouble to get down here that they want to make them feel welcome. Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it, actually. Yeah. yeah, it is quite a way. It's quite a way down and it's quite a way around as well. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. yeah so. What attracted you to that country? I mean, you've been everywhere. What what made you want to get a place there and actually spend more time there? Well, we didn't. Uh, yeah, we, we sailed down to New Zealand uh, about two years after we launched Taliesin because uh, we were asked to meet up with a couple we'd uh, uh, known through the years, Eric and Susan Hiscock. Yeah. And uh, we had only a few times had been able to spend some time together. And they said, come on down to New Zealand. You haven't been here. You'll like it. And we can cruise around together for a while. So we decided, you know, what a lovely invitation. And because, uh, you know, their books inspired us. And uh, they're interesting. They love sailing. So we got down here and um, they arrived a couple of days later from Australia and we all agreed to rendezvous at a place that they really liked called Kawao Island. They said, because you know, we'd said we wanted to go into down to the city and you know, get to know and spend, we were going to spend the winter here. And uh, they gave us a little note to introduce us to some people who had been nice to them when they were, and the reason they said Kawao Island is there's this anchorage, this little bay that is completely protected and loved and quiet and they had spent a winter writing a book here okay and so uh we sailed down here so we decided to go down to kawao but at the and the other thing that happened is we read in the newspaper that there was a regatta held every year where it has starting lines in nine different places and everybody then races into the city and they, it's called the anniversary regatta and up to a thousand boats will be racing on the same day and they all converge on the city and they have a big festival on shore for them. And so we said, oh, what a fun thing to do. So we said, we'll go to yeah. the Kawao Island starting line. So we sailed to Kawao Island and the Hiscocks were supposed to meet us and another couple were supposed to meet us here and then we were all going to sail into the city. Uh, but the night after we got here and we anchored in the main harbor which is you know, called Bonacord Harbor, where there's a little yachting club. And uh, the second night we were there, a westerly gale blew in and the anchorage got really uncomfortable. And so we actually at four in the morning lifted our anchor and started reaching back and forth to get out of the, we couldn't get out of the harbor. There was no lights at that time. There were very few navigation lights around the island. So we were reaching back and forth until there was just daylight, just enough light to sail around to this quiet cove that Eric and Susan had told us about that we could see on our chart. And there's a okay. reef at the entrance, so we had to have some light to be able to pick up the reef. And when there's just barely daylight, we sailed around and anchored in here. And it was so calm and uh, went back to sleep. In the morning, Larry, 
wakes up, looks out the companionway, and he says, Lynn, come and see this place. He says, if we could ever find a piece of property in a place like this, wouldn't it be fun to have something for when we get old and decrepit and don't want to sail anymore? So, um, oops, excuse me. So uh, we um, laughed about that. And then we were wintering here and we'd rent an apartment uh, near the city to set up a dark room so we could uh, develop all the photographs for Larry's boat building book, 642 of them. And um, one day Larry says, let's go up to that town near that island, that Kawao Island and see if there's anything that might be for sale and uh, that we could afford because we had the money from Seraphim. We'd sold her uh, for 40,000 American dollars, which was quite a nice gain for a little 24 foot boat that was that we loved mm. but uh, we'd put it in the bank and uh, we the real estate agent took us out on his boat over to the island or no we came on the ferry I think and it was low tide so we walked around and looked at a few places that were for sale and uh, they were cheap 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 at that time yeah. nobody wanted waterfront places in the, and it was on an island which you know and there's no roads at all on the island and no shops. It's just an island with some, a few, you know, about 100 people living on it. And then uh, he, he said the only other place for sale around here is that place across the bay that used to be a boatyard. But you wouldn't want that. He says, I've tried to sell that place for eight years. And we said, okay. well, let's go look Didn't at it. Didn't know his client very well, did uh, he? Yeah. And he said, and he said, Dan, it's out of your price bracket. So we went and looked because these other places were, you know, 12 or 15,000 American dollars. And uh, so we looked at this place and it had a boat shed that looked like it was falling down. It had a house you couldn't get into because it was overgrown with um, ivy and jasmine. You needed a machete to come to break into it. And uh, the cliffs had fallen away so you could walk between the house and the boat shop and the wharf was condemned. Right. So there's no flat ground. <laughs> so and we way. looked at the place. <laughs> and long story short, we both of us said, you know, when we were able to get a machete and go into the house, uh, we both said, you know, if we spent some time fixing that up, even if we decide we didn't like it, we could probably make a little profit on it and sell it on if it turned out. But if we could build a seawall and reclaim just a little bit of land near the shed, it'd be a nice place to retire and we could do a little boat work. And so we made the owner half an offer that was half of what he had on it and he accepted it. And then all of a sudden we said, what have we done? Who <laughs> <So. laughs> expecting that? But if it's been sat around for eight years and like the estate agent is literally telling people nobody will buy it. Yeah. It was ready to yeah, be, well, it was ready to be purchased. That's it. That's it. And yeah. it turned out to be an amazingly interesting and fun project. It took us, you know, we built seawalls. We, uh, you know, but Larry's boat building skills and the fact that we were you know, writing and working and we were finished Larry's boat building book here. And uh, it's, you know, through the years we've trans, it's been changed quite a bit. We now have an eighth of an acre of flat ground because we did build seawalls and they let us, uh, you know, create flat areas. So it was a very fortunate thing. And the best thing is that whenever we felt like sailing and leaving, we could just leave it because um, 
being on this island and there's no theft. So it's, you know, it's yeah. been very safe. And a neighbor was always willing to check up. So some, we've gone away up to eight years at a time without coming back. And uh, yeah, it's yeah, always absolutely. sitting here waiting for us. And uh, it turned out to be a very wise thing. And the shocking thing is we traded a 24-foot boat for a miniature boatyard and a lovely little cottage. And then Larry, Larry tore the old cottage down and built a new one all out of cedar. It's mm. been a fun project. But this is not yeah, talking good. about sailing. No, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's talking about what came of the sailing, I suppose. How did he build a seawall? Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's a pretty large civil engineering task to undertake. It's just like you build a boat. Everyone says, how do you build a wooden boat like this? Well, Larry taught me in the beginning, you don't build a boat. First, you build a keel timber. And you build a beautiful, perfect keel timber. And then when it's finished, then you build a stem. And then you connect the stem to the keel timber. Well, seawall's the same thing. First, you dig a hole and you put a post in it. Hmm. And we just, we literally dug each hole with hand operated um, post hole digger we dug it right. down and you know almost a meter and then we lugged the pole up that uh we had a you know there was at that time a big schooner brought all of our timber over from the mainland nice. and i mixed the cement yeah I, each each hole had to be filled with cement to support the pole and i did all the mixing in a wheelbarrow and i mixed 20 tons of cement Loaded right. time in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> I, had, <laughs> I had strong arms by the time we got that first wall yeah, built. Yeah, so wow, that's really it impressive. was an interesting project. Yeah, yeah. So the and what, what did um, you do to like backfill against the wall? Did you just like move rubble and rock from somewhere, or did you get that brought in? No, no. We hired a digger, and they took down a hillside. You know, we fared in the hillside right. that was behind it, and uh, that's how we created the flatland. But um, we built altogether 750 feet of seawalls, 229 meters of seawalls. <laughs> That's bit crazy. By, <laughs> by hand. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. Now, I've worked in construction my whole life. So when you when you just said, oh, yeah, Larry just built a seawall, I'm like, That's pretty serious. <laughs> yeah, well, that it was really only impressive. two meters high. Yeah. Yeah. The highest part of it's only two meters. Okay. So it's not, yeah, but still. You know, not like. Yeah. 95 tons of timber. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's that's like a serious piece of work. Yeah, it was, but, you know, you do it bit by bit. We we always said we just, we take our time, try to enjoy it. There's times when it's, you don't enjoy working in the mud. Uh, but it's, Larry used to, we always used to say that Larry tended to build the capital in our life and i i he earned the capital i earned the money so by that time the writing had kicked into the point where uh, i could cover most of the costs with the articles we were writing in the books and when we got a little shy larry would take on a a reno job on a you know classic yachts uh, so and i'd help him on that so the skills that we learned from building our own boats from sailing, we did splice quite a bit of wire down here in the shop, you know, for classic boats. And mm. so the two of us, we enjoyed working together on these various projects. But like I say, Larry was the real builder of the two of us. I was just the you know, materials purveyor and uh, backing him up. And I, 
also had the bandage ready all the time. <laughs> I suppose like, there was always perspective, like with him building, uh, you know, building these incredibly seaworthy boats out of wood, when it comes to doing a seawall, that would actually be pretty simple because it oh. is just like dig a hole, make some concrete, put a big massive stick oh. in it. Um, so yeah, probably, yeah, I, yeah when, it's just the size of it. Yeah. So ju- just going back onto the, um, onto the boat you've got now you've done some pretty heavy miles in wooden boats um what made you go for a steel boat well i didn't go for a steel boat uh when larry was no longer with me uh i decided to go on a dating site because i so enjoyed all my many years with larry 50 years mm-hmm. with larry and the sailing and uh i met a few guys pleasant but yeah, it wasn't an unpleasant experience. But then uh, I was a friend came over from the U.S. to visit for a few days, and uh, on his when he was leaving, I took him over to the local museum on the far side of the island, and there he met a sailor, Australian sailor, single hander, and the two of them were chatting and over a cup of coffee, and this is and my friend Ty said uh, he'd just been with Lynn party. And this guy said, Oh, I've got their storm tactics handbook on board. That'd be fun to meet her sometime uh, right. or meet them sometime. And then Ty explained that Larry was no longer with me. And uh, then uh, I got a phone call from my friend Ty. He said, Lynn, I've met this really nice, very shy Australian sailor who would really like to meet you and have you sign his book. And there was no romantic and idea or anything it was just you know and the guy is only a mile away anchored in another bay he says call and invite him for a drink because i said he says he's too shy to do that to just show up and um i I actually said ty i'm too busy right now because i was coordinating a music festival for the people on the island here a thousand people coming in a few weeks for a festival but ty said lynn you owe me a favor the guy was really nice and uh it'll only take an hour of your time do it. So I called this guy and this, he said, uh, you know, I said, if you want to sail over here tomorrow and have some drinks. So he did accept and uh, he anchored on the far side of the cove. So I couldn't actually see the boat that well. We had drinks, laughed. I've never laughed so hard. Found out he was not the least bit shy, but he just didn't, you know, had never thought to Come and ha- that you know he didn't even know I lived on the island, mm. and uh, then um, and that was that he left his phone phone number because he was heading up north to get the boat refit. And he says, "If I we'd been talking about a, an anchorage I'd never seen on Great Barrier Islands, about forty miles from here." And he said, "Would you like to sail over there with me?" He says, "I'm always taking crew." He just finished a fort a tenure in the circumnavigation, was on his way back to Australia to finish the trip. But he wanted to sail over to the barrier and Great Barrier Island. And he says, I'll call you when I'm uh, heading over there. And uh, you can join me and my friend. Well, I was dating these uh, few guys. I hadn't heard from him. So that was, you know, out of the question. And uh, I said to one of my neighbors that I was getting... really wasn't hitting any guys or didn't meet any guys that made me laugh. 
And then I said, the nice guys to go out for lunch or dinner, but I like to laugh. And she says, do you, who's it? What kind of, have you ever met anyone that made you laugh? And I said, you know, the last time I laughed so hard, there was tears rolling down my face. Was this that crazy Australian sailor who came and had drinks that extended into dinner? We laughed so hard. She says, whatever happened to him? I said, that was six months ago. I have no idea. I said, he was, uh, there was, you know, she said, uh, did he leave his phone number? And I said, I have no idea. So she went and grabbed my guest book because I have a guest book here. And she grabs my phone and she texts him and invites him for dinner. Now, we don't <laughs> even know if he's in New Zealand. Right, okay. <laughs> I grabbed the phone. And I said, you can't invite someone for dinner at my house when if they come over, they can't go home because the ferry doesn't run after six o'clock. <laughs> Good point, yeah. <laughs> and she's... <laughs> she says so <laughs> and to make a long story short he called and said thank you very much but his daughter's having a baby and uh he's going to fly over to see his first grandchild when it ha and uh so i said oh that's too bad because i'm actually leaving in 10 days to um go on a seminar tour that included england and the u.s and i'd be away for several months and I said, and he was planning on sailing on to Australia when the season opened, when the cyclone season was over. Okay. And uh, he he called back an hour later and he said, yeah, I've been thinking about it. My daughter doesn't need me there when um, she's just first having the baby. I can wait a week or two. So yeah. he came for dinner. Yeah. And he never went home. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a cool story or are we sort of sure well actually he went back to the boat for four days i went to visit him for, up at the boat so that's why i am sailing on a steel boat right, okay. not, it, it was a delightful romance and it still most of the time is and yeah. uh, we hit like it off a, wonderfully a, and he, a series of coincidences as well absolute coincidence so he had a steel boat and uh he um, did not choose a steel boat looking for a steel boat. He did something quite different. He's a, he was a, he's a lawyer and solicitor and barrister, but he actually became a law lecturer and worked in environmental law and uh, created the legal framework for the World Heritage Sites in Australia. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, it's quite interesting. Uh, but uh, when he was 60, he said, that's it. I want to go sailing. And he'd had sailing experience and cruised before and when he was young. And he's a mountain climber, so you know, he loves getting out and stretching those legs. Mm -hmm. uh, he's six foot two. I'm four foot ten. It's quite funny. Uh, but um, <laughs> he, he decided when he wanted to have a cruising boat that there are so many boats out there, so many choices that he wanted to narrow it down. And he said, I decided to look for Vandestat design because I know they're well-designed, good yeah, boats. Yeah. And there's a lot of them around, but that way I narrow the field down. And he says, you know, 34 to 40 feet, that's my limit. And that's where he started looking. And uh, he came across and he said, fiberglass, steel, whatever, just the boat that he wanted. And uh, he found Sahula, and he had many good reasons for choosing her. But it wasn't because of the steel that he chose her. He would have been just as happy with glass fiber. 
and uh, he, but then he did a lot of ditch crawling. He went right up through from the Black Sea right up to through Europe, through okay. Bulgaria and uh, you know just up the Danube and down the I forget all the different. And he loved it. He really enjoyed exploring the European canals. And he said the steel boat was pretty useful there because no matter how careful you are, those uh, all those locks and walls he said, came, yeah, you came through without any damage at all. Yeah. Just he says there's a bit of red paint on the sides of a few locks from his, his boat's bright red. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he found it a very you know and and as he says, I'm not a woodworker. He's just a pencil pusher. He said, so I couldn't take care of timber. And so it's worked well for him. It really was a good choice. And what's it like for you sailing a boat that's got an engine in? <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's just say, <laughs> oh, it's different. It's very different. Um, it's a... Uh, the real joke is that when uh, when we first, uh, you know, we were just in a new relationship, um, he had uh, had decided to sail around New Zealand to get down to Fiordland before he sailed over to Australia, and he already had that planned. And a friend was joining him, a young his one of his daughter's best friends who had sailed with him previously, wonderful Charlie. So they said, you, you know, is it okay if the if uh, I just join in and Charlie comes too. Well, it turned out to be delightful. If I was going to just choose a granddaughter, it would be Charlie. And we're still good friends. But we all, we sailed down to Fiordland. I spent a month in the fjords, spectacular country. And then uh, Charlie had to fly home to England. So we dropped her off in Bluff. And for the first time, we're making a passage, just the two of us. It's just a four-day passage. And we left uh, and we got out I'm not sure if it was leaving Bluff or Dunedin. I forgot exactly which port. But when we got out, it uh, was a little bit rock, rock and roll. You know, it was a bit rough. And I was on the helm. And uh, I noticed that the paddleboard on the, that David carries on the foredeck uh, uh, was moving a bit more than I liked. I said, David, come and take the helm while I go and tie up the paddleboard. He comes out and he says, Lynn, you're still new to the boat. How about I'll go forward and tie it? He says, I just, you know, you haven't moved around that deck that much. Okay. Uh, and I don't mind being treated like a sweet little old lady. It's kind of nice. <laughs> and uh, so uh, as he's stepping out of the cockpit, I said, just as a joke, David, don't fall overboard. And he starts going forward comes back and he says he turns around and he comes back and says Lynn as a matter of uh, interest what would you do if I did go overboard so I looked up and we're running wing and wing got the pole up and I said well the first thing I do is do a slam jive and leave the pole the jib backed until I checked around you know and got everything sorted out and then I put her on a close reach and he says wait 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 how about starting the engine <laughs> Right, okay. Oh, oh <laughs> I didn't even think. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. So, uh, yes, it is new. Um, there's some really nice things that I love about having the engine, and that is you push a button and the anchor comes up. 
Yeah, if you've got a win you know, list. That anchor, yeah. or that, that win list. And uh, what I particularly like about that is instead of getting upset when people anchor too close, just lift the anchor and move ourselves. Yeah. yeah don't think twice about it. Uh, and uh, if you don't like the anchorage, you go move somewhere else. It was, and in the fjords, it was really nice to have that anchor win list because very deep anchorages. Yeah, but uh, Yeah. So I, you know, I like, I like that, you know, some of the aspects of the engine, but I hate the fact that it adds so much maintenance, not that the engine itself, it's a wonder, you know, this was a brand new engine when he, he put a new engine in when he bought the boat, uh, said that was the first thing he was going to do. He did not want to, he said, I don't want to learn. I don't want my engine to teach me how to be a mechanic. So he put <laughs> okay. a, yeah, brand, he pulled the old engine, I'll put a new one in and that, that served wonderfully. It's a Yanmar 50 something. Uh, but um, because you have the engine, you add other things. Yeah. And the boat is a simple boat by modern standards, but we still have, you know, always a work list of things that are not working perfectly. Went through three wind generators before we just said it's not worth the trouble, but it meant that we were, you know, having to contact. To manufacturers, they finally gave us our money back on the one we had because they agreed that to have the controllers blow out on three different times wasn't up. Uh, so I'm just not used to the complications and it's, I find it frustrating because we sailed, I sailed for years without ever having to stop to get parts for something because we never had breakdowns. Yeah. And, uh, it's a good yeah. point. So I find like, like, yeah. the, the only type of maintenance that I've ever had to do on my boat has been related to like the engine or the electronics connected to it. Um, oh. Yeah. The rig and the sails, no issue no problem. ever. Yeah. No, no. So uh, what I have done that's been fun is I've introduced David to light air sails because uh, he, you know, I don't, if there's wind, I want to be using it. And uh, so we've added a big nylon drifter, we call it. Uh, you know, great big nylon Genoa, and mm -hmm. he it's got a sock on it, which David likes. I don't like because I'm just used to pulling him in, but he likes it, so that's fair. And it is a bigger boat than I'm used to. Uh, it is. We have such pleasant, pleasant sailing when we get that nylon up, where it's some of the nicest sailing in the world when it's flat waters and you're moving along at only two or three knots, but you're moving. You're getting there. Yeah. So that's, yeah, it's, it's not, she's a nice boat. But, you know, that the equipment, you know, I just get very frustrated with, <laughs> you know, if it isn't. You know it's not necessary. Uh, that's the thing. That's yeah. But well, look, the chart, the chart plotter's kind of, you know, it's kind of fun to have it, but I still like the paper backups because it gives me the big picture. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's but I enjoy the man and I enjoy the fact that I get to still keep going places. And uh, I just love just being out sailing and I'm looking forward to some of our sailing plans that we have now. What do you need to do? Because I know you're going for a refit. I've seen some photos um, that looked like you were doing quite a lot of work. But what's actually left to do on that? Oh, well, just to put all the now it's all going back together just to put all the trim on it's all we've ended up with an all new galley and right. uh 
well, no, not all new. We're keeping two of the cabinets are just going back in. I just finished varnishing them. So it's a, you know, the, finishing the woodwork and, uh, you know, the plumbing's in. We got new water tanks, uh, which are the thing is that David found that when we were doing a steel check, the inside of the hull, yeah, uh, that's one thing about steel boats. Anyone who's listening, if you're buying a steel boat or thinking about it or building it, make sure every piece of furniture can come out so you can see what's behind it. Yeah, they're important. Because, uh, yeah, uh, the man who built David's boat was a professional steel worker, but an amateur woodworker. And when he put the interior in, he didn't consider getting in back of it for it, you know, inspecting the hull. Yeah. And when we were doing a hull inspection, we found rust, a bloom, as I call it, under a water tank. To get the water tank out, we had to literally cut the bunks away and cut all this, you know, the water tank out. It was a wooden tank that was molded in place. So that meant we had to take that part of the interior out and that's and then decided to do a full check everywhere. And that's why a third of the interior got removed. You know, it had the only way to get it out was to cut it out. Right. So now it's going back in. So you unscrew a few panels and things come right away. So that's really good. That's important. So what, so what are you thinking in terms of like a plan or a route for where you're going? Like what, what do you want to do next? I don't like to tell people what I'm going to do because then if you don't do it, people say you failed. I mean, we've never told people we're going around the world because what if we sailed for 20 years and never got around the world? You know, we just tell them, you know, what we'd like to do maybe <laughs> a bit. Yeah, I'm, quite, I'm pretty cautious I'm about it. But, uh, yeah. but, right, but look, one of the things we are thinking, if all goes to plan and the world is uh, sorts of, uh, you know, some of this COVID restrictions out, uh, this year we want to sail up to the north of New Zealand and explore a bunch of the little gunk holes uh but then we are thinking of putting the boat on a ship and okay. shipping her to chichester because i have a wonderful uh young younger friend he calls me mom his folks call me mom too so he sort of adopted us, larry and i <laughs> okay and he's a he's got a fellow named ashley butler butler boat works and his uh he's now opened a ship, taken over a big yacht construction yard in Chichester. So, right. so he said, send the boat over here and then come on over and start, start your cruise from here. Chichester in the UK? Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, nice so place. To we have some place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we want to set sail from there. If, if That would be a fun thing to do and sail uh, some places in Europe that we haven't been to. Either Neither of us have. And uh, then uh, uh, both of us would like to sail up to the Great Lakes of the U.S. And right. uh, just, you know, that's just a, a general idea. And we'll see where, see where it takes us. But we are planning that that far ahead, I can tell you. But uh, we, I'll be 80 by the time we're uh, heading across the Atlantic. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, health warranting, I figure I'll keep doing it as long as it's fun. Yeah, like absolutely. And, and do you think that there might be a book come out of the back of this or a documentary or something like that? 
oh, I'm always, I've always enjoyed writing. Right now, actually, I'm working on a book called Passages, okay. which uh, is about, uh, you know, uh, it's a little different. Uh, it's about uh, the difficulties that happen when a wonderful partner starts to fade away mm-hmm. and then making the decision to move on in my life to, you know, and um, I had to decide when Larry went into care, he had Parkinson's and Parkinsonian dementia and developed that as we were sailing through the Pacific the last time. And uh, so, that, you know, 47 years of voyaging, I can't complain too much and a wonderful marriage. But uh, deciding when he went into care that at that point that I would risk uh, take the the leap and move when I met David and uh, then the sailing we've done together and showing a romance a romance novel older age that that life is uh, that life's been very good to me very interesting. Mm-hmm. And had some great sailing, and there's some wonderful sailing stories about that. Uh, you know, th- with Larry and I, the last year going through the Pacific, the last time was uh, a really interesting time. So that's what I'm working on slowly, and I don't make promises as to what date it'll be finished. But uh, the uh, I would have be would have been farther along, except I spent quite a bit of time helping Mike Anderson when he was making this. Uh, documentary about larry yeah the, the real deal documentary so that uh uh it, i won't say it set me back six or eight months or a year on my writing project but it definitely was done at the same time i was like i would have been writing it and i think the end results of the documentary are beautiful oh yeah it's amazing it's fantastic to watch <clears throat> yeah it's how did it go because it was launched at the um Annapolis Boat Show a few months ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, it was uh, a month and a half ago and yeah. uh, it got really nice reception. And Brilliant. there hasn't been, it's had, you know, positive reviews by everyone who's seen it or written about it. And uh, it's, uh, it's really rewarding. Uh, what, what's really funny uh, is that s- several people before they saw the video said, you know, they read about it was. And they said, "Well, why is there a video? Just why is it all about Larry Party? Because what about Lynn? You know, would Larry be the same if Lynn hadn't been part of his life?" And then when they saw the video, they saw that it's yes, Larry was you know is a unique individual. He's very different than me. But what I think Mike caught in there is that the two of us contributed very different things to our relationship. Yeah, and. Uh, worked together tremendously and uh, I was I never felt left out in that documentary at all oh included, no you would have uh, thought that yeah. oh yeah you, you would have never yeah. got that from it. it it was um yeah it was two people you know <laughs> well it yeah. wasn't like there was one person and then somebody <laughs> else is there it's like there's two people doing this thing together yeah. it was uh it was brilliant to watch oh well I just hope, you know, I hope people enjoy it and encourage, you know, feel encouraged to get out there. And I think Larry was had some amazing quips or little short comments that stuck in people's minds. And uh, 
Mike really went out of his way to show show those. I mean, one of my favorite things that Larry used to say, whenever I thought, saying, God, this is difficult, he said, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important reminder for people who are trying to get ready to go cruising or who are out there cruising. This, you know, no, it's not supposed to be easy. Yeah. And, and it's, it's that effort that you put into it. It's like the, the property here. It wouldn't feel anywhere near as special if it hadn't been quite difficult to get it to the point where, where we got it. Yeah, you know, the, the hard times are important, and the same thing with getting ready to go cruising. So. Yeah, I think as well, like from from watching the documentary, because now going cruising is so so easy. Like you don't yeah. really need to be able to sail that well because you can pick weather windows so simply with like the forecasting models that everyone's got now. Um, you know, boats are like a hell of a lot easier to handle and sail. So like when I watched it, I, it, it just inspired me to, um, I, I suppose it just eliminates like a lot of the fear or a lot of the doubts. It's just like, oh God, if, 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 you know, my situation involves like a windy application and a chart plotter and a radar and this and that, I'm like, <laughs> this is just so easy. <laughs> you know, compared to like the, the bravery as well, what you guys had. I mean, like the, Honestly, for me, if somebody said, oh, cross, cross the Atlantic without, you know, electronics, I'd be like, are you mad? <laughs> why, would I, why would I do that? Uh, but you, you just went for it time and time again. Well, the interesting thing that you mentioned that, the, the electronics and such. Remember, windy or predict wind or whatever you use cannot solve the problem of the fact that storms will happen weather does change once you're out there it can help you you can learn to choose a better weather window but i find it interesting when i talk to people nowadays people aren't learning about the weather Hmm. as we had to they're learning how to find out about the weather yeah (laughs) but we had to learn to interpret the weather ourselves and be part of the weather. And I, I, you know, people say, well, what do you like or dislike about uh, sailing on David's Sahula, which is becoming very much mine too. It has a completely enclosed cockpit. You know, it has clears, as they say, that you can close off, which is nice for, you know, uh, Dodger and, uh, bimini permanent bimini isn't it's good for my skin which has been battered for years mm-hmm. on the other hand it keeps me out of the weather yeah. it keeps me from being out on deck exposed and feeling it change uh and watching the you know seeing everything around me and the chart plotter keeps you from having to go out and take bearings and noon sights and so you're not part of the weather uh, you're actually cut off from it in many ways. Yeah. And I think that therefore induces a fear because if you can't get information from predict wind, you don't know, you're worried that you don't know what the weather's doing. And, yeah, uh, 100%. Where, yeah, where you, you know, we learn to be looking all the time and we'd see clouds changing. We'd say, oh, we've got a front coming towards us. And we got a little bit prepared. Uh, if I saw uh, you know, what looked like an approaching frontal system, I'd immediately make up a couple extra meals that were real easy to, ready to go. And uh, 
maybe tidy up the boat a little extra, make sure that the snacks were easy to get to, make sure the storm trysail was ready to go up. Because we were watching ahead, not. And uh, so we still, we did quite well with the weather predicting. But the opposite side of it is because people feel that the weather router or the weather routing applications are telling them exactly what's going to happen when things don't go exactly right there's more fear yeah yeah without a doubt yeah yeah because i'm sorry there are times when they're going to be wrong or the situation changes faster and you're out there and you can't just say oh because i know this information i can sail out of the way of a storm some storms are quite big they cover a large area and they do form up quickly mm. so you got to be ready for the bad weather and that's practice, learning to be comfortable on the boat, having the right gear. But the right gear isn't that weather predictor. It's that storm trysail. It's that extra handhold that you put on the boat to make it easy for you to get around. It's the confidence you build by learning to move around on deck. And people say, oh, I'm going to make it so everything's led to the cockpit. But there's times when something snarls on the foredeck. If you're so used to never getting out of the cockpit, are you ready to go up there and unsnarl whatever that is or put an extra lashing on something? Mm-hmm. So it's this preparation. Instead of saying, I'm never going to hit bad weather, it's saying, I've practiced, I'm ready, I'm going to avoid bad weather, but I'm going to be comfortable if it occurs. Yeah. yeah I'm definitely. sounding like a lecturer. I'm sorry, I'm sounding too serious here. <laughs> No, but it's 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 experience. <laughs> no, it's right what you say. Like, I mean, we, where where I sail, I sail in like the Southern Med, so the weather forecasting is pretty much useless anyway. It's always wrong. Um, so yeah, whenever you go out there, you've, you've got the winds generally coming from the complete opposite direction. Um, we we just did some sailing in Greece, like uh, in October, and one of the um, one of the skippers who was on the boat called Herbie. He's like an old school sailor um he doesn't use any forecasting he just wakes up he looks at the wind smells the air um and he's like oh yes good we're good for this passage today or oh yeah we'll have a nice sail yeah. and it's like and he's um it, it's stuff you can learn but i, I just find it fascinating because i don't have a clue about any of it he'll look at cloud formations and which way the wind's coming from and he'll be like yeah we'll mm-hmm. probably get like you know gusts in about half an hour something like that and then you know the gusts come in yeah. half an hour <laughs> so yeah so they're very handy person to have on board if like you're crossing an ocean but yeah i think if there's one thing i want to learn more it's definitely that just more about like the meteorology yeah. side of it um because yeah if you are out somewhere and you get stuck in a storm like you know being able to you know, see a few miles ahead and see what's going on. It's going to give you a hell of an advantage. Yeah, well, there's a a little book that I recommend to everybody. It's uh, called Instant Weather Forecasting. It's by Alan Watts, I think is the name. It's a little British book, which is, yeah, there's pictures of different clouds and what generally happens if you see clouds like that. And it's it's a starting point. You start watching the clouds and you start learning from that book. Yeah. Yeah. What's it called? Instant Instant Weather Forecasting. Instant weather, weather forecasting. forecasting. Yeah, I'll get that. I've got a few. I've got a few books on a list now that I need to. Uh, that I need to pick up. So yeah, I'll add that one onto it. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, so, right. Uh, well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me again. Um, <laughs> I think uh, the third time's a charm, as they say. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, good. Good luck with these renovation works, and uh, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again next. Thank you.